0: Release the Jeffrey Epstein client list. Say what we know about unidentified flying objects. Just give it to us straight. Every politician dances to the tune, like a circus monkey, to their biggest donor.
1: How do you expect to unite the United States when you struggle to do so with Royven?
0: I think the way we're going to unite this country is by...
1: But before we get into it, guys, I've been getting interested into politics lately, if you couldn't tell from the guests we've had on the iced coffee hour. And I got to say, I am incredibly disappointed when I tune into Fox or I tune into CNN and the headlines are completely different, yet they're reporting on the exact same thing. It's made me insanely disappointed at the bias that exists.
2: Here in the iced coffee hour, we really do our best to hear as many different perspectives as possible, but we can't do something like this on our own. That's why we've decided to partner with our sponsor, Ground News, to help bridge the gap and help
1: get the entire picture across. Ground News is an app and website that assesses media bias so you make sure you're not just listening to one perspective only. They also show you the bias in specific articles and just media in general by indicating whether it's a left-leaning website or a right-leaning one. They also
2: have a blind spot feature that shows you articles that are being underreported by either the
1: left or the right so that way you could get the entire picture. Understanding the bias in the media is incredibly important if you actually care about solving the problems and knowing why things are happening. So if
2: you're interested in signing up for Ground News and seeing exactly what's going on in the media, our link is down below in the description or go to ground.news iced. It's only $5 a month after getting 30% off using our link down below in the description.
1: Once again, guys, it's ground.news iced for 30% off with the link down below in the description. On top of it all, we just really appreciate Ground News for sponsoring this video and also just performing the service that they do for all of us, making sure we're aware of all of the bias that exists in media. So with that said, Thank you so much, Ground News, and on to the episode.
2: Thank you so much for uh, having us on. Thanks for coming over, guys. It's good to be here. I will say one of the biggest criticisms that I've seen from people who watch you yeah. is that they know your stances, they know your policies, but they feel like they don't actually know you as a person. Yeah. They kind of feel like you're this human chat GPT, Yeah, I've been but they, called don't, that. <laughs> they don't know you. Yeah. So I'm curious, growing up, what did you want to be? You know, I... Went through,
0: like most young people, a lot of different phases. My parents, I think, acclimatized us to think of being a doctor when we grew up. My mom was a doctor. A lot of our family members, uncles and aunts were too. I think that came, though, from more of a place of financial security. My parents came to this country with not a lot of money. And part of that immigrant mentality is just a very defensive instinct, which is how are you going to have you know, a stable, secure life. So that's kind of the defensive environment in which we were raised. I, you know, at at points along the way, look at what other kids' parents are doing, thought maybe I would be a lawyer at times. That seemed like not a career that called me in terms of being in a service profession. I honestly kept an open mind when I went into college, but there wasn't something that I thought of that to say that this is definitely what I want to be. I had... Like, Different what about as a kid? Figures and Like, you're like
2: five years old. Oh,
0: that's a you long didn't long long want to ago. be an investment banker I mean, yeah, when you No, no, five, I think I mean, wanted to play. I think I wanted to be a basketball player. Really? Basketball? Yeah, yeah. You're was, taller
1: than I expected you. Oh, thank you. People <laughs> do say that to me, <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't not, know why everybody's six feet that?
0: tall. I'm six, yeah. yeah. Short for the NBA, though.
1: <laughs> Fair <laughs> not enough. Not NBA Fair standards. Yeah. yeah.
0: In principle, you can achieve everything you ever want within the limitations of
2: what you, God has that's given the you awesome. So when did you realize That like basketball Is not going to be uh, a Probably around
0: Probably around fourth grade Yeah fourth this grade. was just it's Realistically
2: just, not going to be I, I might have made The select
0: team But then there's The AAU league Which is yeah, You guys have no reason To know this But that's kind of plan. Where it gets really serious And I was getting Nowhere near that And so I ended up Switching sports to tennis Where I thought I had A better shot of Actual success And ended up You know doing well too But that wasn't going to be In the cards to be A professional tennis player either but a lot of the people that I played with did end up going to the Pro Tour, and it's a very different life. How were you as a kid growing up? It's hard to know. I, I, now that I'm a parent, yeah. you kind of think about what you were like. I was somebody who probably enjoyed—I was pretty social, enjoyed meeting other kids. I was probably a kid who conversed with, you know, when my parents would have their own adults or whatever over before my younger brother was—you uh, know, he's four years younger than me, but before he was of age— I was also able to probably be comfortable talking to people older than me or whatever. That was just the environment mm. that my parents raised me in. I was always pretty curious, I think. I like to explore new things. I've always enjoyed almost debate and arguing and storytelling. Where do you think you got that from? And in that
2: inquisitive it's, mind? It's a good question. Were your parents like that? Some Did people are just
0: born like that. So, I don't think I turned out the way that my parents intended to mold me. Uh, and and i mean i mean that in a good way i and i think that they wanted a guy who put his head down followed the rules learned how to do something useful built a successful and stable career and a family that had more security than they had or felt like they had when they were in this country that was their you know mindset for me like the kind of thing that you would hear in my household growing up would not be something like dream and be whatever you want to be when mm-hmm. you grow up no it wasn't that it was you need to focus and have stability and make sure that you have a clear path to a stable career and that was instilled in us starting at a very young age and so now that i'm talking through it with you guys when you asked me where did that come from yeah. i guess there's something innate probably in many kids that make them react but it against what their parents yeah i mean but, but there's a reactionary instinct and so you know i haven't had a conversation like this in a while but it makes me think about maybe it was a reactionary impulse that led led me to actually pursue a career as an entrepreneur and live a career life that was completely unstructured at every step of the way.
1: It's interesting because you kind of fit the mold of what your parents wanted from you for a very long time, I yeah. mean, especially with your job at Goldman Sachs. But then for some reason... You know, it's I, like- actually, what's, what's really just interesting is, for me, when I
0: went to Harvard and then had an open-ended career plan, that alone was quite a bit of a leap. And then when I decided to potentially explore you know, career paths outside of traditional science or medicine, that itself, I I know, I know that the way I look at it now, or the way we would look at it Mm. now is that's like a pretty cut and dry,
2: you know, assembly
0: line path. For my family's upbringing, that was a weird thing to do. That was already off the beaten path. They didn't know anything about what that world Mm -hmm. entailed. So yes, in some ways it was itself much more, in retrospect, part of the assembly line path to go get an internship at Goldman Sachs but if you ask my parents that was like a foreign notion to them which was interesting actually.
1: but you still tried or I guess had that like subconscious pushing on you that was like okay find like a hiring job that's yeah. stable where you work a lot which was the Goldman Sachs thing but it seems like you still had this like thing that you were born with that was like okay no no, no we got to do something more creative we got to do something yeah it
0: was higher risk it was
1: definitely beaten into my head so, so there's yeah.
0: You know, there's both parts of you, right? I mean, if we all look inside each of ourselves and ask ourselves, who are we? I mean, there's the part that's beaten into you. I mean, I guess in Freudian terms, you call that, I guess, the superego or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then there's the inner self and the combination of those two things create a blend of who we are as people. So yes, there was the part of me also that grew up with some sense of stability and trying the tried and true path. That's half of me. And then half of me just wants to break that and rebel against it and or just explore my own creative self about where my passions actually lead me. Now, I would say that in that summer internship where I chose, it's probably one of the choices if I was to go back again, I probably wouldn't have chose that particular summer internship, but I learned a lot from it in Mm -hmm. retrospect. And yet, Even my senior year in college, that was part of what probably motivated me to start my first business, which I did in my senior year after that internship after my junior year, which is my first business that I founded. But I probably did it in some ways out of feeling constrained by that first summer internship. It
2: seems like you very much want to have free will to go with what you want. Did you ever get in trouble with your parents growing up?
0: Yes, I mean, like, but like not in, nothing, <laughs> nothing extraordinary. You were fairly yeah. obedient,
1: right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Kid, yeah. You, yeah. I mean,
0: like I wasn't. I wasn't like I wasn't. The, I wasn't like a kid who I, I was not the kid who ended up in detention. But you were no, also
1: highly opinionated. Yeah, like I was, I, so. It, back much. in the day, when yeah. you were a kid, did your opinions ever get you into trouble with your peers? Did you ever get into a fight, or did you ever like get bullied or something?
0: So I went to a public school from first through eighth grade. It wasn't. a particularly great public school, but it was a public school that was the one we were districted in nonetheless. That was a place where actually being the straight-laced academic, you know, put your head down, go to science class kind of kid wasn't actually particularly rewarded. Mm -hmm. And so there was probably one instance, this is what caused my parents to switch me out of that public school to go to a Jesuit high school. There was a flight of stairs, I was carrying my science books from class to class, got pushed down that flight of stairs resulted in me probably I mean we think that was the cause about a few months later having to get a hip surgery who pushed and you it was a random kid there's no you way you have a history with this kid you no know, it's, it's actually it's, it's actually a random, really interesting yeah, yeah it's really random and a lot of these kids grew up in difficult backgrounds yeah. so this is a school where a lot of kids in the classes they weren't in my classrooms necessarily but were like one or two years left behind there was a wing of the school called the success wing, which is the wing that they would tell kids like me to stay away from because mm-hmm. these are kids who may be 14, 15 years old, but are still in, you know, seventh grade.
1: But they called it the success they, that's, wing? That's the wing that they called it. That sounds it's, a bit counterintuitive. Well, well, yeah, it is counterintuitive, the wanna... success
0: wing was I, – I probably yeah. went, I went in there for one class ever, but the success wing was the wing that you stayed out of. But, yeah, it's a place where, you know, you got a nerdy kid with, you know – glasses and carrying a science textbooks from class to class who's an academic guy that's a target but that was also a good experience for me because you know you're an outsider in that setting that's fine but i went to a different school setting where i was an outsider which was saint x high school in cincinnati so that was a catholic high school yeah i was a lone hindu kid and that was also an interesting learning experience too and so i've probably always been in settings where i have been comfortable grew to be comfortable i would mm-hmm, say yeah in being in settings where I was, you know, often the odd man out. So, and that's kind of was was my
2: big yeah. part of my upbringing. What happened to the bully afterwards? I don't the remember. The guy pushed you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was like, I didn't go running to a teacher. We didn't, like, really? I don't, I mean, it was, I think, probably nothing. I, can't, I couldn't even remember who the kid was. It wasn't a kid who's in my classes or in, you know, because we were, uh, you know, they had slightly advanced classes or slightly remedial classes. There were different classrooms, but in between classes, it's the same group of kids going together in one school. And yeah, probably nothing happened. And you actually like,
1: tumbled down a flight of stairs. Yeah. We were pushed down a flight of stairs. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it
0: happens. It's the kind of stuff that goes, you know, growing up, it's probably the biggest instance of what I would call the closest thing to bullying that I experienced, but it was definitely something that, mm-hmm. you know, a teacher of mine then, my parents aside when they picked me up from school They're like you need to get this kid back out of here and he was a teacher in that school
1: so when I was in high school I observed two different predominant archetypes of of the student which is like those who work extremely hard and have to study consistently to get good grades and they feel pressured usually by their parents or by some other factor to like put their nose to the book and yeah. like grind versus those where school kind of just came easy they would get good grades but they wouldn't have to study as much as the other person I'm wondering which one of those two would you say you were because I See you, you're like ultra successful, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars. You're running for for president, which is just insane. Like which one, which archetype would lead to Hmm. this future?
0: I don't think that you could necessarily predict one as a path. I think one of the things I've, I mean, that's just my honest answer. If I was t- to think back, which one I fit, there's probably elements of both. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did have parents who were very focused on the traditional path, to educational achievement, come home, do your homework, et cetera.
1: But did it come easy to you? But,
0: but yeah, I mean, I think that everybody has their native talents and mm-hmm. I think, you know, doing well in school was something that I was naturally prone to do and, mm-hmm. and, you know, write or read or learn or do math. Well, yes, I mean joining the NBA wasn't in the cards for me, but the equivalent of that for academic achievement was just to be blunt about it. And so I'm not sure that it's the compliant, shut up, sit down, do your homework mentality that automatically yields a particular result. I think it's different for different people. I mean, my wife was maybe on the other side of that. She's also incredibly academically successful, you know, one of the smartest people I've met. But you know, I think that for her, it was much more Libertarian in mm-hmm. her in her upbringing compared to my parents' focuses because they moved around in different places and so it was her love of learning that guided her. I also had a natural love of learning, but it was in an environment that was much more more structured. disciplined. Mm. But I think it would be probably uh, reductionist and you know overly trying to fit a square peg into a round hole kind of thing to sort of think that. There's one trajectory of parental upbringing that leads to one thing, and right, another but I think we could draw patterns. Like yeah, if maybe. you have
1: disciplinarian that- parents that tell you this is the structure that you should be, and then you have to learn and teach yourself to like to. Be disciplined to do all of your work and to, you know, read the cross your T's and dot your I's and stuff like that. I do think that that does have some long term effect. Contrary to the person that has like the natural, innate, inherited intelligence mm-hmm. that learns to be lazy. They learn they can cut corners and stuff like that. And it comes to, from a more like creative problem solving yeah. type brain.
0: I think so. I think that if we're going to draw that out, though, I think that there's definitely more than two of course but those there. are the i would say like yeah. those are
1: the two predominant archetypes that yeah. i observed in high school how old are you if you don't mind me 24 else? you're 24 actually you're oh yeah still 24 yeah. Hey, what's that
2: 33 you're 33
0: yeah oh you look younger thank you um you're not an age where that's a compliment it's just a fact uh, now that i've become a parent myself and also just reflecting on seeing a lot of people who've pursued a lot of different journeys i think that when kids show up like even at like a very like a very young age in many ways they're wired they are who they are they're just like i've got two young sons they're both one of them's three and a half one of them's a year old they're very different people and we're raising them in the same circumstances like we're not doing anything that's that different for one than the other mm-hmm. but they're just they're different predilections one of them talked earlier than the other one. The other one got up on his feet and is like far more physically dexterous and and physically exploring versus the other guy's more verbal and emotional exploring. And I think that in some ways we're each, the cake isn't fully baked, but like it's like a half-baked cake (laughs) when it shows up. And so how much ever you will to tame that or mold that, I think is a failed pursuit versus... Hmm. Then there's the separate question of, are you in an environment where that inner self is able to become Mm -hmm. the maximal version of whatever it's going to be versus an environment that sometimes can choke that out of existence for a long time or an environment that, you know, and this might've been my experience of this, that wasn't really like fitted to what my new true inner nature was, but that actually helped me hone it and discover it even more. I think that was my experience of it. It depends on what kind of underlying person almost was born into their bodies that found themselves in that circumstance. So
2: I'm curious, if you could change anything with the way your parents raised you, what do you think that would be?
0: I'm not sure I would. I wouldn't be who I am. You know, we're we're each the product of our own experiences. So I'm not, there's, there's a few cases where I might look back and life and say there's a few things that I would have done differently and even still there's not that many of those because like I'm not even a person to dwell on that maybe I should have taken Spanish instead of French in Mm. high school like that'd be that'd be on the list for me I would have been better at speaking the relevant language because I would have used it more but I don't I'm not wired to think about that because the truth is who I am today is absolutely a product of the experiences that led me here and so to say that i would have wished for one of those experiences that was different either in a decision that i made or that my parents made is almost like rejecting some aspect of myself today
2: but i guess how are you parenting your children differently than how your parents raised you
0: well i think there's a couple realities Um, one is our children grow up in far more comfortable circumstances than I did. I think that that raises both opportunities and concerns. I worry a little bit about, I think part of who I am, the scrappy nature of who I am comes from a kind of insecurity that you pick up from your parents. It's hard to recreate something that mm-hmm. isn't, you know, manufactured a little yeah, bit Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And on the flip side, I think that we are wide open to our kids deciding for themselves what it is, discovering for themselves mm-hmm. what it is they want to do. My, my older son right now wants to be a fighter jet pilot. That was not within the <laughs> Overton window of acceptable career options. Well, right. that sounds fun, out.
2: though.
1: Yeah, it does
0: sound fun, actually.
1: But as a father, I bet you that's a little, you're like, oh, hold on. I think actually, age, not yeah. at all. I think, you
0: don't think so? No, I don't at think so. At that age, I think it's great. And that's, that's totally different. I would be different so
1: nervous for the safety of my kids. Oh, they're three years three. There is, oh, come he's on, three years old. But even,
0: but even old. if he goes and become a fighter jet pilot, that's, that's something he's passionate about doing. That's pretty awesome.
1: That is cool, and, and I think
0: that that's just a different outlook. Now, it's interesting to think about this. I, I, I can't say that one of those approaches is better or worse than the other. It's just the nature of where we are in our lives versus where our parents were in their lives. And I'm a product of that upbringing that... Would bring up my kids in a different way than my parents did, but that doesn't mean that I wish that my parents did yeah. in any different
2: way. Mm-hmm. So that makes for sense. your kids, would it bother you if they wanted to pursue a career that made no money whatsoever? Like, let's just say I wanted totally fine with that. Okay,
1: absolutely. So it seems like your parenting style is like worlds different than the parenting style you were subjected to when you were a kid. Yeah, because you're like so far, do whatever you want, kids.
0: Yeah. So it did change I mean, change whatever we you. want. We try to teach them. We do our right, best to instill in them. And, yeah, and, and also yeah. understanding the consequences of their actions, but to empower them to be able to make those decisions for themselves. Interesting. Absolutely.
2: But would you want them, if their future career made no money, would you feel good supporting them financially through that? Like, let's no, just say I, they wanted to be an artist. Let's yeah. just say they made no money whatsoever, but they're like, I love art. I'm passionate yeah. about this. Then the money would have to come from somewhere.
0: Well, uh, if you're a good artist, maybe the money comes from making Possibly. art. Possibly, right? yeah. So, so there's that. So I think that there's a sweet spot zone for the optimal upbringing that you maybe be able to give your kids from a material perspective. I think that if you don't have enough money to send your kids to a good school and you're in a bad school district or whatever, and this is relates to some of my policy issues, which we can talk about another day, then I think that you're at a disadvantage. I mean, if you're not able to get the same kind or quality of education as peers, your age, you're at a disadvantage. On the other hand, if you're raised in circumstances where you have nothing to actually aspire to because you're just showered and swimming in wealth, that it crowds out your own ability to have hunger and scrappiness. And I've gone to college and law school and otherwise with people who fit that description. I think that's a kind of disservice that you can do for your kid as a parent too. And so our goal for our kids will be allow them to have the true luxury. This is a real luxury to be able to pick the career that allows you to follow your passions without fear of putting food on the dinner table. But that doesn't mean that you have a right to fly around in a private jet. because of the career that you chose.
2: Do you think that might stifle motivation, knowing that there's always a fallback?
0: Yeah, I wonder about it. Um, I I mean, I think that that that's a risk. You know, a lot of kids might end up, I I know a lot of people who have ended up, I think some of them are even in my own extended family, who ended up in careers that they're, they're like fine or perfectly complacent with, but isn't exactly what they would have chosen if they were following their true passion. They did it out of the need for, achieving a level of financial security, and then they pursue hobbies that may more align with their passions. And, and nothing to say with anything wrong with that model. I, I suppose most people work for the sake of putting food on the dinner table, but make sure that work isn't the entirety of their life so that they're able to pursue their passions outside of work. I'm a little bit different. The path I've pursued is one where I don't really draw a distinction between work And hobby and passion and pleasure, the way I'm spending my time all the time, as best I can, is directed towards something that I'm incredibly passionate about. And that's the ultimate win, I think, is to be able to live a life where you're able to do that. You can't do that if you literally, I mean, we're human beings. We're like have certain basic needs. You need a shelter over your head or food or drink for sustenance, right? So if you literally can't do those things, then yes, you're not able to achieve self-actualization by following your passions through your work. I think that the boundary we'd like to draw for our kids is to give them the opportunity to pursue their passion without fear of putting food on the dinner table, fine. But that doesn't mean that you're going to live a life of opulence and luxury automatically because of that either. No, that could come through being an exceptional artist or musician or creator of whatever kind you want to be. But part of the trade off of making whatever choice it is, is you're passionate enough to do that regardless of whether that's the actual reason you're doing it to accumulate green pieces of paper. That's not a reason to pursue a track as a singer or a artist or whatever. You should do it because of your passion. And if you were doing it because it was going to accumulate you green pieces of paper, then that's not following yeah. your passion. That's just the equivalent of going to work as a you know, a, a janitor or a cab yeah. driver or what anything you... else that's doing it for the money. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What are your hobbies?
1: Families have a lot going on.
2: All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and 6-1-since-that-matters and what do I even say other than hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hobbies outside of work. What do you enjoy? To tell you the truth, I I do... I know you like. I I know you love war. I'm the same way. Yeah. But like, if you if you take that aside, I I play tennis.
0: Besides, okay. Yeah, I'm a tennis fanatic. Okay. Uh, The the presidential campaign has not been great for my (laughs) tennis game, but until this kicked off, probably uh, probably since I was like since I turned maybe 29 or 30, for the last seven eight years, yes, tennis has been a big passion, both watching and playing. I, I used to play growing up, and so that's something that I try to keep up as much as I can.
2: Is there anything besides that?
0: terms of like fun hobbies yeah so when kids came into the picture that d- one of the things is that does eat into your hot you got to pick hobbies you get to pick right. one or two i did enjoy for a while um good film and good theater like good hmm. movies and and or good live production yeah so that would be something and then writing is a hobby of mine too actually yeah. just free form carry around notebook long form writing and some of the argumentative stuff sure i'll publish and you mm-hmm. can see it and you know, wherever I've published this stuff. It's probably what resulted in me writing three books over the last couple of years, I, I was probably a suppressed author <clears> without knowing sure. it. And so writing is is a hobby of mine as well.
1: You've also mentioned before that you are vegetarian for yeah. religious and moral reasons, and that you also don't partake in any sort of, like, drinking or vices, like like, smoking anything as well. I'm yeah. just curious, like, why do you decide to... Like, how is it a moral reason to be vegetarian from your perspective? Because Mm -hmm. for me, I I like eating meat. I think it tastes great and all, but morally I'm conflicted on it. How do you Mm. draw that distinction between like, okay, for your own personal sake, you deem it as immoral yeah, and also for the other vices?
0: Well, I think that, I think there's the choices that we make in our own lives that are totally different from the policy perspectives that we offer on others, right? So I've been a CEO of a company. Well, do we serve meat at company events? Yes, we do. Because I believe that each person Mm -hmm. is able to make the choices that they deserve to make that's best for them. And certainly from a policymaking perspective, I'm a hard libertarian when it comes to people being able to make whatever decisions suit them and not legislating one form of morality. So put that to one side. I was raised in a vegetarian household, but the reason I remain vegetarian is that all else equal, I would rather not kill an animal for my culinary pleasure. If my life depends on it, absolutely. Not gonna think twice. If my nutrition actually depends on it, like if if I'm gonna be less healthy in some way, absolutely I would would do it in a heartbeat, no problem. Because I do think that that's a trade-off that's justified if it's going to allow us to live a more effective life, then absolutely. So are there circumstances in which I would do it? Absolutely, but I'm able to get that in ways that don't require killing a sentient being. If I can do it that way, I'll do it that way. That's the way
2: I look at it. And then what about the no drinking stance? I'm not a, I mean, have I'm you, not a
0: hard yeah. liner. I just yeah. prefer not to be intoxicated. I prefer to be in control. <laughs> like that's just part of the freakish nature <laughs> of my control freak nature yeah. of myself is I don't want to do things that, like everything I want to do, I want it to be a conscious
2: decision. When, d- when did you set. make that decision? When did you realize that?
0: Probably like pretty at a pretty young age. I mean, I like to be in control of the situations that I'm in. And I think that I've seen what it's done to friends and I don't care to subject myself to addictions that allow me to lose control over myself or who I am.
2: Was there a specific that's moment? Not a moral, that's not a moral decision,
0: yeah. right? I think there's nothing There's nothing immoral hmm. about, about having alcohol or nothing immoral about smoking a cigarette. I mean, those are health decisions that you want to make for yourself. Was
2: there a specific moment, though, that changed your opinion on drinking or smoking?
0: No, I don't think so. I think that I'm open-minded. I mean, it's not like it's not like I won't have a sip of alcohol, mm-hmm. but it's like it's not like it's like poison. I have to, like, spit it out, right? But I just don't like being intoxicated. And I think that I did grow up in a household where neither of my parents drank, so maybe that was sort of in a in natural mm-hmm. conclusion for me to come to. I also have friends who have become alcoholics and have suffered through that, that reinforced my belief set as I grew up. It's the same part of me that likes to get a good night of sleep. I feel good and at my best the next day Mm. that I don't want to feel hungover the next day and I don't want to feel inebriated when I'm enjoying life plenty as it is. I don't even drink, I rarely drink caffeine, actually. I don't have coffee. I have enough energy where, as it where is. Where does the energy and, come from? We
1: recently yeah. had a guest on our podcast that said, what was it? Like of the uber successful, there is a hypomania. hypomania. Yes. It's a very, very rare trait or gene that some people have. It's like a super gene where it means that you can get crazy energy off of very little sleep. I get I I
0: for better or worse, I have a lot of energy.
1: So you probably <laughs> have hypomania. Co-distance. Yes.
0: Yeah, I don't know I don't know about the term, but I uh, definitely am somebody who has a lot of energy. As long as I'm doing something that I think is worthy and interesting, mm-hmm. yeah, I can run on very low fumes and be pretty high functioning. So I'm curious, who else in your family way. has that trait? My mom has that trait for sure. There we go. She yeah. is uh, also not a coffee drinker. Okay, and and like to tell you the truth, I don't know what would happen if I drank coffee. Like, I think I might explode. <laughs> it might like I would. I would love to see this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> probably not great. Even if I have like a tea. <laughs> and it just I gets you going gets it gets it's it's a little bit like I'm not even thinking yeah. clearly especially if I'm like tired like after not like a great night of sleep but then have a tea it's like oh no I can't deal with that I'd rather not have the caffeine and I'm I'm good at finding so the So our
2: prior inside. guest said that a lot of that is genetic that you would I, inherit I that, that trait from a parent or close relative
0: Yeah I bet that's genetic
1: interesting Yeah, yeah. huh
0: I want to talk a little bit there's, about... There's far more that's yeah. genetic than we understand, for sure. That's what I, 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 that I t- think t- we're, we're wired yeah. the way we are. And that, that goes yeah. to my whole point about the upbringing piece of this is I just think it is overly false precision to think that there's some kind of formula to all of this. We're complicated beings. Each of us is unique mm-hmm. in our own ways. And to think that some model of molding you is going to result in some very precise outcome... I just don't think it works that way.
2: How much would you say is genetic versus upbringing in terms of maybe someone's success, mm-hmm. life, motivation, future?
0: I mean, both are important, but I think that we would like to. The, the fairy tale side of us wants to say that you can achieve anything you want with your own hard work and commitment and dedication. The fact of the matter, that's not true. There's no chance. I was ever going to make it to the NBA, despite the fact that I would have wanted to when I was in second or third grade. And so I think what I think of as, this isn't exactly your question, but just to get Uh my own thoughts on the table is what do I think of as the spirit of what we mean when we say that in America, Hmm. meritocracy or merit or unbridled excellence. What do we mean is whatever your God given talents are. And each of us, the three of us, I'm sure have three different ones, whatever they are, any two different people have different God given talents. Whatever your God-given talents are, that you live in a society that allows you to achieve the maximum of your God-given potential without anybody standing in your way. All right So that's what I think about that's what I think is beautiful about this country. That was the opportunity that I was given in this country. I think that's the opportunity this country gives everybody. That's what's special about the United States of America. How much of that is God-given talent versus God-given talent? Gifts of other kinds like parenting or circumstance or otherwise depends on the attribute you're talking about. I mean, if you're talking about athletic talent, well, let's talk about athletics. I think that if you want to be anywhere from the zeroth to the 70th percentile, most of it is probably just effort and commitment and passion and dedication. If you want to go the difference between like the 98th percentile and the 99.9th percentile. It's absolutely genetics that make that difference of the increment of whether or not you're able to go that final distance controlling for somebody who has been passionate in that in that respect. And so, so we could say that for athletics, but I think there's probably other domains of life for which that's generally true too. And so I hate to draw an overall rule of thumb, but we we'll use the athletics as a model. It's probably not too far off the mark for other domains that we could think of too, to say, If you want to be in the zero to 70th or even the zero to 90th percentile Mm. of a given domain which is to say you're pretty darn good better than nine out of ten people who do it your effort and your dedication and your hard work and your passion and your upbringing and your commitment will get you pretty much as far as you want to go but if you want to go to that final increment Mm -hmm. of being that what we call we call it that for a reason freak of nature right i mean the people who are winning championships in athletics or Comparable non-athletic mm-hmm. domains, the true freaks of nature, we call them that for a reason, is that it was a product of, you know, nature, actually. It's both, I feel it's like. It's both. Take yeah, Kobe it's Bryant's, both. you know. Yeah, it's yeah like I mean, just... no, I mean yeah, Kobe Bryant, no matter, you could have somebody else. I would venture to say, you, any of the three of us that worked as hard on the basketball court as Kobe ah, Bryant, is, we're, still gonna me, be, we're still not going to be. We're still not going to be doing what he was doing at, at the peak of his game, yeah. and that's okay. It's a beautiful thing. We should celebrate that. You think about it. Why are we opposed to athletes using performance-enhancing drugs or anabolic steroids or whatever? Is that it ruins our ability to celebrate that native? talent, right? I mean, like, let's say we talk about Kobe Bryant, maybe 30 years from now, we can have AI programmed humanoid robots that will do on a basketball court, what like the combination of Kobe Bryant, LeBron James could never do, or on a tennis court, Novak Djokovic could never dream of doing, I wouldn't want to watch that. Now, some people might say, I'm wrong about that. Maybe we will. And I would draw a distinction. The thing you'd be admiring there would be like computer right. programming coding. Right. So there may be room for like we talk about tennis and pickleball. There may be AI ball later, <laughs> which is like the equivalent of like the AI version of humanoid, <laughs> you know, AI program robots playing tennis and they're like hitting the ball mm-hmm. like way harder than like a normal human tennis player is. But you're admiring a different thing right. there. And in some ways that's even part of what's baked into why we separately enjoy men's and women's sports differently. I'm just thinking out loud. It kind of reminds me of f that's, that's probably why of... both are, you know, if you want just the people who are gonna hit the hardest or pat mm-hmm. or or just like see the ball fly the fastest, that's not what you're really admiring. You're admiring people competing to the outer edge of what natural capability endows combined with effort. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about us that admires that. So like, you know, I mean, men's and women's sports, we can celebrate each one differently. Partly because that's what's baked in. What were you saying about
1: F1? F1, a lot of people that celebrate F1, surprisingly, are engineers, like mechanical oh, really? engineers, because they love to that's appreciate of all, of it. Yeah. all of the stuff that goes into creating the vehicles. It's not necessarily like watching a bunch of people go super fast around a track. Yeah, My friend, as a mechanical engineer, is like yeah. super into all of that stuff, not for like watching the races, but like the mechanics behind building such a machine.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. And so I think we can admire different things in different experiences, but. It's okay to acknowledge that some of that is nature that mm-hmm. we're celebrating, expressed through us For as sure. human beings, and that's that's a beautiful
1: thing too. I do want to bring up relationship advice because oh, sure. you said in your book Woke Ink that your parents got an arranged marriage. Yeah, which is. I mean, like growing up in the United States, growing up in Southern California is nuts. We just nuts don't to hear. see that. Like, yeah. like we think, think that that stopped existing hundred years right. ago.
0: It's nuts, but it's not as nuts as you think, actually, because it's kind of come full circle.
1: Well, they've been actually. married forty years oh, successfully, they're very successful. yeah. and uh, you also yeah, said marriage. wasn't the marriage like twelve days after their first real date? Yeah, of, like, I mean, it was like it was like later? less than less than two. Can weeks you
2: walk after. us through how does that happen? Yeah. so two families get together; they each so they pick knew each who other they before, right? The families didn't know each
0: other before, but they knew of each other. Like via via networks, So so my mom was living up and growing up in Mysore, which is one part of India. My dad was in Kerala and via family networks. And there's a lot of pre vetting that went into it. We're like, all right, they're both educated. They're both like even like there's not some major mismatch in height. Right. Like, like there's a lot of factors that go into this. Right. <laughs> Were they, you know, academically inclined. They know what each other's interests are.
1: But what did they think about it? Like your dad and your mom, were not they like it weren't just you know, a little normal, of a little bit of a little bit of a little bit
0: of them little bit of a little bit the a little cool the, to of a little bit 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 to a little bit of a to bit of a little bit of a little bit of a to bit of a little bit to where we are now. But the environment that I grew up in was one where you would date people that you might meet at school or at a bar or in a neighborhood or whatever and have an organic interaction that guides you. All the way now to Gen 3, where you have an algorithm that asks you for your preferences and asks you and about then your site. Like it's right or left. Yeah, it's exactly. just like the and bar it is seem set. So that which seems, weird. that's is weird. Exactly. So that seems a lot more similar to me than like to to what my parents arranged marriage was yeah. it arranged by AI today
1: mm-hmm.
0: instead of arranged by human beings who love you. So I like the way it went for me, which was my wife and I met at a party and it, and we were naturally drawn to each other and we had an immediate human chemistry that we then followed and led us to the life that we've pursued. And that's cool. But that's but what, what the irony now, of, yes, we can look back and say like arranged marriages are weird, but it's equally weird from my frame of mind to look at like, algorithmically set up anonymity for swiping left and right there's senses in which i mean i just went to wedding with my, one of my best friends who met exactly in that same setting but it felt like it wasn't so different yeah. than the setting in which my but parents guess, met which is kind of funny well, and interesting
2: how did they get married after 12 days why 12 days yeah. is it like after that <laughs> I mean, after a week and a half
0: if you ask me so i'm not like I'm whose I'm not, decision I'm not was that like, that
2: like that was model. that their parents saying get you know, married I, after 12 no, days no, or were they just so. like well i think Let's I not waste like, I
0: think it's sort of Somewhere in between Where now you can also Look at like people Who I know Maybe you guys know as well Who like Yeah we've been together For six years And we're We're deciding Whether we want to get engaged At a certain point It's like Dude have some conviction in your relationship what do you feel like is too <laughs> right. long what
2: do you feel like I mean, is it's true right like no, just, that's a fair just point. Like, yeah. you know, what's too long to get engaged what would you say is a point where as a guy I mean, it's like I by this that, time what's I too short what's too long i from mean your perspective? broad strokes yes right? like, we, we understand just,
0: this is not uh, we're not making policy <laughs> <Right>. we're uh <laughs> maybe you know, we I mean, should i just think like if i was talking to a friend yeah right and my friend has been like if he's been engaged for three years, but they're postponing the wedding, I was like, something's off.
1: Interesting. Something's off, right?
0: right? Why get engaged then, right? Or, or why why have the level of partial commitment without just going all in? So that's, that's, that's an instinct that's baked in there. Does that mean 12 days is the right answer? Probably not in the modern society, but part of these are societal norms that are baked into the society you grow up in. And so I think if your engagement... Is measured in years. Well, I'm saying At least from, the time, my friend or from whatever, the time say, meeting, hey, think about it. from yeah, the time about of meeting from the time of meeting
2: somebody to the time where you get engaged. Like, how yeah. long does it take to I mean, get that, to that know somebody? By
0: person, I th- I think that a lot of people though would tell you, who are in happily married relationships that are built to last, and I'm grateful and feel fortunate to the world to God that I'm in one of those relationships now. But I think I'm one of these people. But many people I know who would tell you the same thing. Within a matter of weeks and at times within days, you'll know. You know, wow, yeah,
1: that's crazy.
0: So, against that backdrop, like 12 days isn't nuts, but if, like, I think if you're talking about within a period of months, if you're serious, right? Like, it's one thing to just be like, oh, I'm hanging out with this person and I'm dating like five, you know, whatever. I don't, you know, what the culture is right now, but dating five people at the same time, and you know, I'm not gonna, it's not, it's not like a particularly serious. You know, relationship, put that to one side. But if you're actually in a monogamous, single person to single person committed relationship where you're invested in getting to know the other person and vice versa, chances are that if you are going to fast forward that 40 or 50 years and say that that worked, more often than not, you knew that within the first several months of first probably 3 months of being in that relationship. Okay, a
1: couple yeah. of points on this cuz we just had Ben mm-hmm. Shapiro on recently and he said the exact same thing. He was Did like, he? Okay, it's Yeah, interesting. because because he married or he proposed to his wife like 2 months, right? Is early. After they first yeah. met, it was very quickly after they it's first not, met. That but that doesn't strike me as crazy, right? Like you well, know they, they you have know. a great Move relationship, yeah. playing yeah. kids together. So, as someone in the dating pool currently, what I'm so scared about is getting into a relationship and not feeling that immediate connection. You don't need to be scared even, of it. But here's the thing, it's like I view relationships as a certain threshold that you have to exceed and you're like, okay, a threshold of compatibility. Now I know I can be with this person for the rest of my life. But I do think that there is that like pinnacle relationship where you do meet someone and like right off the rip, you're like, okay, this is my person. And it's like, am I going to subvert my expectations to to being, you know, Exceeding that threshold yeah, of compatibility,
0: or for normalcy, like but, versus, but there
1: there yeah. there comes a time where you can't continue to date for twenty years and hold out for that pinnacle relationship, yeah, because then you'll be too old.
0: No, I know. I think that some of this is just you know, there's there certain things that are in the cards for you in life, and certain things that aren't. And I think mm-hmm. there are many people who could be happy mm-hmm. in a long run, lasting relationship with the person who probably still isn't their soulmate. And that's a tough position to be in. But you know what? There's worse things that happen in life too to a lot of other people that may never find that or may never find internal satisfaction either. So I can't speak for that. One of the things I am most grateful for in my life is that I was in a position to say that very quickly, here's a person I met and this was made to be and it's obvious within a matter of months and so we're just... Mm-hmm. you know fate is sealed I wish that for every person you're asking for the scenario of what happens if I'm not that I'm just if, expressing if I'm not one people a personal who concern that, of mine because yeah, I've always held fair. out
1: for like I'm gonna meet that person where it's gonna yeah, be like, like 12, 12 days 24. Like, right yeah I'm t- tomorrow I'm 25 25 happy oh, yeah. birthday thank
0: you thank you so give yourself a few years and I would say that probably there's a life staging thing I guess I haven't been asked for this advice before so you know take it with a grain of salt but I think it's probably a life staging thing where you give yourself the next 10 years to open yourself up to that possibility. Mm-hmm. And my advice during those 10 years would be don't waste time in a, like a multi-month relationship that, where, where you, you know, it's know a, yeah. that that's not going to be, right. that's not going to be fitting. Like if three months in, you're not sure, move on. That'd be my advice for the, at least the next 10 years of your life. Now you might get to your like mid or late thirties later mm-hmm. on and- You feel like you want to live a life that brings children into this world, that find somebody you're compatible with, that maybe doesn't meet this idyllic standard. You can turn to that later, but give yourself the next 10 years to give yourself the maximal chance as opposed to, I think what I've seen many of my friends go through as well is, you know, I'll be in a relationship where it's compatibility for like three, four years, but then you get to your late 20s and you're like 29 and you're like, what do I do with that? and that was something that probably many of them regret mm-hmm. right you could have that like, what was 4 years could have been 4 months and give yourself i, I think, think that's the a opportunity great piece of advice, so that right that'd there. be my like for you specifically in the life stage you're in. Well,
1: thank you for the relationship. Would be the advice yeah. I, you I, asked to, yeah, to tie off to tie the knot on this to tie the knot. That's yeah, one. there we go. Yeah, On yeah. this whole we'll relationship have... thing, the one thing that you said that was super fascinating was comparing modern dating, like on algorithm-based apps, to arranged marriage. But the difference is in arranged marriage, it's the people that probably know you most intimately, mm-hmm. know your character, know your values, your personality, belief systems, versus you selecting for yourself what you're interested in which is the the modern dating way and i find yeah. that a lot less effective and if i'm referencing if i'm correct it's carl jung who said when it comes to judging one's own character everyone is horrible mm-hmm. something like that like you're better you are judging not judging
0: others than your own it's yeah. exactly let me
1: let me let me say something
0: about that i think the people who are making the modern dating apps would say something different is it's not even you choosing it Oh the, really? The AI will know better than you what you're being served. <laughs> but here's the thing: but the AI AI, so just because you put in your preferences of what you want to see, right? The doesn't AI doesn't
2: you what It's actually good to feed you. But when they, what the they want here's they give you the
1: people that like you continue to date and yes. stay on the app rather than the. They're personal, not
2: about like matching people. They're partner. on the app, so there's some that some.
0: I mean, I mean, I mean I'm not it a seems like most want to keep you on as long as possible. Tinder is something that I've heard. They show
2: you the most attractive people first. Yeah. You swipe on them, and then it shows you an attractive. It's like a slot machine. They show you an attractive person. I think it was like every like twelve to fifteen times. They need to keep you on there. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, I'm not up on
0: the latest of what the competitive (laughs) landscape of these dating apps look like. From but but I would imagine there's a market niche for at least back in the day there used to be the ones that would, you know, it was eHarmony or which one that Mm -hmm. would sort of promise you more that what you're in this for is not something in the short run but something that's long run and lasting. But my only point is. The real question and the real debate is, do you trust an algorithm to do that well or do you trust the people who know you best, know you best yeah. to do that well and a network and a tradition that makes that happen? So I'm certainly not planning to – we have no vision that that's how things are going to play out for our kids. It's <laughs> right. not how it's right, played right. it out for me. But all I'm saying is what seems even to me growing up super weird as a model now that we've entered the postmodern world – it actually makes that previous super weird model right. of my parents seem a little less weird yeah. than it once did because the postmodern yeah. world isn't all that different. It does
2: seem, though, that there would be more pressure on your parents to get married because of all the family pressure that they mm-hmm. put on the two versus them coming to their own decision. They could say, well, if our parents you know, say it's good, wouldn't that have such a big influence on them to believe
0: it it's It probably good? did, that marriage is inherently good.
1: Now, the stigma I- of divorce as well. Like t- for the cohesiveness of oh, yeah. arranged marriages, yeah. Yeah. there is a huge stigma like, in divorce. those communities Absolutely. too. Oh yeah, divorce. if they got divorced Absolutely. and their family yeah. made that decision for them, but the divorce rates are great right be... amongst arranged marriages, from what, what I've heard. The divorce, divorce rates are yeah. like well, pretty, but, very low. but part of it might yeah. account
0: for what you just said, which is that if it's tradition that brought you together via an arranged right. marriage, it might be tradition that keeps people together in right. unhappy marriages too. I don't think that's most of what's going on, but to be fair, that's that's you know. A possibility in certain cases. I am somebody who believes that all else equal. I mean, each person's different. This doesn't mean for every individual, but all else equal, marriage is inherently good. Mm -hmm. Bringing children into the world in the context of a married household with two parents in the house is inherently good. I don't know that it's such a bad thing for us to adopt that cultural norm. I don't think the government should be enforcing it, but far from it. But I think it's okay for us to embrace a culture that says that all else equal we're rooting for you mm-hmm. to get married ideally finding i would agree with that that soulmate that. and that, that becomes part of a general cultural norm versus the postmodern slide of well maybe i will maybe i won't well maybe i'm a man and maybe i'm a woman right i mean it just it just it just goes to it, it can it can go to a level of once you sort of feel like you're removing a lot of constraints, what it turns out you're doing is you're actually just creating new ones that often can leave you far worse off as a result. And so I think it's this tricky thing where. It's
1: like the paradox of choice. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I th- I Yeah. I think, yes. I think it's well said. I think that you can become a prisoner of what you feel like the opt- is it the optical illusion of choice when in fact it's just a new kind of prison. Hmm. hmm. And so I think we need some level. I think, I think we probably benefit with some level of default structural norms in a culture, in Mm -hmm. a society that we still have the freedom to opt out of. For sure. And I think that's probably the optimum that I would want to create for my kids and not just using governmental power, but as a cultural norm, I think that's a good thing in our country to create a certain default ordering, but. There's always going to be people for whom the right answer still isn't fitting in that order. There's still a path to opt out. And, you know, I guess that's probably what my parents had, right? I mean, if my my mom or my dad, either of them said after those 12 days, they don't want to do it, mm-hmm. nobody was going to force them to do it, but there was a heavily, you know, heavily culturally informed expectation that there's a good chance this is going to work. And as long as you have that opt out isn't, now, there's not, we're really yeah. just talking about marriage, we're talking about really anything, mm-hmm. right? That if you're a man, you dress a certain way. There are certain, you compete in certain sports in certain ways. But if you're a fully grown adult and you want to do it differently, we're not going to stop you. Right. No right. one's going to come to your house with the handcuffs and say you can't do it. But that if you bastardize and pervert that ch- fetishization of choice to say that there's no default norm at all and there shouldn't be those defaults, I think you're just creating a new form of oppression and depression yeah. as a consequence. And I, I, think that's, I, I think we're, we're veering too yeah. far in that. I direction.
1: agree with that, but I also think that we do need to appreciate those that do go away from the norm, whether or not we like embellish it and like yeah. you know what I mean, like recommend it is a different thing. But we do need to appreciate and respect the uh, you know the yeah. abstraction from the norm yeah of course yeah Do for, those, to for those
0: for whom that's yeah. the right choice
1: okay so now we're going to go into a more of like a policy thing by the way i read woking mm. i loved it mm. i loved it and i want to say i've always intuitively thought that there is so much commingling between corporate america and like it's the weird, bureaucrats right? i've like intuitively it made so much sense to me yeah. but i never really felt like i had like that confirmation but this book just like i feel like i you know what I mean? Thank like the you, matrix got opened, which is insane. And I'm not just like a full-on just like believer of everything. It
0: was a you, it was a very honest book. I mean, I, I was not really filtering very much in that book. It was for sure. what I felt at the time. I put it on a page and that was that book.
1: Yeah, but th- no one's open about this. Because mm-hmm. especially the people that, they control the dissemination of information. Right. You know what I mean? So obviously, why would they out themselves as the people that muddy the waters? Right. So it doesn't really make any sense. But... I I really liked that book, and I'm going to recommend it to a lot of people. Yeah, I hope a lot
0: of young people read it. I mean, it's it seems a little less bold today than it was. Oh, come on a minute. Yeah, some people uh, than it was at the time. But at the time when I wrote that book, the stuff in there you were not allowed to say it.
1: Right, but it's so abstract still, and I do think that you go a little too nuanced and like deep about it. Where I think if you made it more of like a, the problem with nuanced opinions, which is exactly what. Are we, are we about. Yeah, we're rolling. Okay, the problem yeah. with nuanced opinions is the fact that you need to justify it with so much data, so much like supporting information yeah. that nobody is willing to pay attention to. And I found that to be one of the biggest issues today is that a lot of the times the correct opinions are the nuanced ones, but it's not exciting and it does require a lot more information. Too much and thinking. Exactly. Yeah, and your book really. was exactly that. It's like in order to understand that framework, you do need all that supporting information, but nobody's going to go out of their way to figure it out. Well, I hope that we change that because I think the truth is sometimes
0: nuanced. For sure. And sometimes requires getting beyond just what is built to trend on algorithmically powered social media. And I do worry about the discursive impact of an internet that was built to mimic real life and then we now have real life mimicking the internet Mm -hmm. and i think that that's something i worry about i don't have an obvious answer of how to change it
1: make it more exciting somehow yeah i I don't know how but like like the truth isn't exciting enough Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. at
0: times I, i i think there's a difference between exciting and beautiful
1: sure but i mean enticing like people want to try to reach the truth yeah how do we make that more I would say you know enticing hmm appetizing
0: why is that desirable to reach the truth no to make it more appetizing
1: because then I think
2: because people it, it, digest it I think it's people are more receptive to surface-level basic ideas they don't need to think too much about uh, but that interests them, and so how could you get people interested in something if it takes too yeah. much work? if it- I mean, it's, it's it's a kind of an age-old question of like, what if you
0: have a good product, but you don't market it well? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah that's a good- What's the
0: point of having a good product? But right. you got you have to operate within the constraint of making sure the marketing of the product doesn't change what the product actually is, and so. You know the the truth in this particular case a deep debate about cultural and political you know circumstances in the United States in the year 2020 when I wrote that book is there a more effective way to market that to reach a larger number of people without changing the underlying truth of what you're communicating I'm sure there is and I'm Mm -hmm. sure that I probably have been less effective than I than I can be but for me my goal in writing that book was not to reach the maximal number of people, it really wasn't. It was to. Many was, was, was practicing out a hobby. Mm-hmm. Get your thoughts <laughs> out free long paper. form writing exactly. Yeah. And and if I write down there what I actually mean, and you know nobody reads it but ten people, yeah, that'd be disappointing. Certainly, mm-hmm. part of me would be disappointed by that. But I'd rather do that and have it be true to who I am than to solve for what's going to reach the most people that, that was easy in the case of writing the book where it actually becomes a lot harder is on a presidential campaign yeah right because there I mean this is one giant popularity contest is what this feels like actually it's it's not what I expected I I think that policies have less to do with it than I expected coming into this. So what do you think is the most important factor? I'm not sure. I'm figuring it out right now. But policy to uh, be beholden for me super policy packs, is very probably. important. I mean I think that money's money's the most important factor. hmm I mean money is tactically the most I, it's not what I think should be the most important factor. There's two different questions. Yeah. What I think should be the most important factor versus what is the most important factor. Hmm. And I think that there's a big gulf between the two. And the reality is I'd rather kind of do it like I did with Woke Inc, to make a bet on the universe and on the country and on our process Mm -hmm. to say, I'm going to speak my convictions and maybe people will hear them and maybe they won't. And if everything works the way it's supposed to work, then that means that if that's what the people of this country want, I'll be the next president. I I feel good approaching it that way and that I can put my head on my pillow at night regardless of the outcome. There's a version of the world where that just doesn't work. And what you need to do is you need to check certain boxes, particularly those that allow you to
2: accumulate large-scale donors, really, Mm -hmm. to buy the ads, need to reach people, et cetera. So do you think this is really an advertising thing? It's like how many people can you get in front of how much do you think it would cost? I think, I think spending—I mean, the person who wins this election this year all the way
0: through is probably going to spend about $2 billion.
2: $2 billion. Yeah. So is that how much you think it would cost to be able to get elected president?
0: Well, I think that you can't get elected if you don't have a message that the people of this country don't Correct. want. But the distortions created by the amount of money that's spent via the super PACs completely distorts the system. So it's less that that amount of money will win you the election but the fact that that much money is being spent creating distortion and yeah. noise makes it much more difficult for a guy who's coming in from the outside yeah. and actually just express his views where do they spend the money do where does
2: 2 billion dollars go At. where tv radio mail billboards, direct probably. mail but billboards are those are those the people who show up to vote yes
0: in in primaries absolutely okay yeah the fact of the matter is the republican primary electorate a lot of them, they're not your, they're not the world that we're talking to right now. <laughs> it's people who watch old school cable television. That's where they get their news and old school radio, like AM/FM radio. Mm-hmm. That's the reality for the Republican primary. But when do you
2: think that's going to change? Because eventually those people Slowly, are going to age I, out.
0: It's going to change, but I think it's I think the the obviousness of the fact that it is going to change creates an illusion for how quick that's going to happen. I think it's like a 10 to 20 year time horizon.
1: Mm. I have a a very blunt question as somebody who is a part of that like ultra wealthy upper echelon, like elite members of society and running for president. I am sure as shown in your books that you have access to and can observe the level of corruptness that exists in the United States. Yeah. Now, especially as you're running for president, are you surprised by it? What? What? How am, have you I am, experienced corruption?
0: I'm surprised by how broken and corrupt the political system is. And I, like, you're surprised that, by it, yeah. And that you comes in as a guy in... who's not naive to this, right? Who, right. who has a baseline
2: expectation yeah. that it's a broken system. It's far more broken than you expect. How so? Because I'm a complete outsider. Yeah. This, like, how is how is it surprising? I have so no I'll idea. Tell you,
0: it's it's surprising because they create the illusion that it's not. So I'll just give you some. You know, boring facts, but it helps you piece this together. The max amount you can give to a campaign in a primary for a presidential election is 3300 bucks. Turns out you can donate another 3300 for the general. So add that up, the most you can contribute to a campaign is 6600 bucks. That's a lot of money for a lot of people, but it's not enough to, to sway buy off yeah. a presidential candidate. It's just not because it's going to cost $2 billion. There's a lot of people who can give 6600 bucks. Why do we limit it at 6600 bucks? We limit it because we don't want any one person to have undue or corrupting influence over our president. That's why we have that system. This is all a farce. That's not where the money, like I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but like 90 plus percent of the money that's been spent on this campaign season so far has not been spent by the campaigns of the individual candidates that are subject to these limits. It's spent by super PACs. These are these separate entities where there's no limit to how much money people can put in. They can put in a million. They can put in 10 million. They can put in 100 million. And you have people putting in tens, soon to be hundreds of millions as individuals. Why
2: did they do that? To get influence.
0: So So the very thing that we were supposed to stop with the campaign thing... Now the candidates, what they do is they show up at events hosted by the super PAC where there are mega donors in that room, 10, 20 people given millions of dollars apiece. That's who the candidate knows is actually funding their campaign. I mean, if you look at other candidates in this race, Ron Sands, Nikki Haley, whatever, these are people where the dollars are really being spent by their super PACs the candidates know who's the super PACs are. And I'm not saying these candidates are good people or bad people. It's a broken system. Many of them are good people tainted They're by this broken system. They're capitalizing that, right? They're playing the game as it's, as it's currently played. And so what happens is they dance to the tune of those donors, the things they say on TV or on that debate stage or whatever. That's not them speaking. That's some mega-donor speaking using their vocal cords as a vehicle, as a vessel—
2: to communicate, this how much played. do you think it would cost to be able to do that? Like, what's the minimum? Like, is it 10 million, 50 million? No,
0: I mean, I, you're saying, you're saying,
2: like, if, to have if your own money, correct? To like, yeah. if policy. I were to influence, a policy, oh, is oh, it, to influence if, a policy, let's just say, you know, whoever's running, uh, you know, whoever's in the lead right now, 50 million bucks, yeah, is, is that the amount? Is it yeah, 10? I, I, is it 100? I think,
0: I think if you're talking about contributing. Mid to high seven figures, you're definitely going to have influence on a politician. If you're in the eight-figure territory, you're in the really special club of people who are then the puppet masters. So the people who can write eight-figure
2: checks, they're the puppet masters. Is, are these companies or people? People. What is the message that they're trying to get across usually? is it Depends on what their self-interest is. I mean, Probably different
1: people have different deregulations self-interest. regulations in their industry. Yeah, and-
0: or, or, or actually even just pet policies but- that they consider to be their version of... Of what makes for a better America? That's actually the thing. Is it's not exactly as you'd expect in terms of it all being directly relating to like their business interests. Sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes
2: it is for sure.
0: But if only it were that simple.
2: Have you been approached for any of these
0: for Super PAC? Yeah, kind of stuff. Yes, you know, like so, huge so my...
2: donations. Say, hey, we'll give you a hundred million dollars, well, but wait, wait, we, wait, we wait, want you to. Wait, it doesn't work. It, it it never works that way, even for the other candidates. Okay.
0: The way it works is they're technically, they will say, can't be super PAC coordination, right? So, but, but Ron DeSantis' entire campaign is literally being run by the super PAC. So that's not his fault. That's not Ron DeSantis' fault. But it is a tortured interpretation of how the system was supposed to work in the first place. Why even bother with the campaign contribution limits? I mean, why? If the candidate's entire—the bulk of his campaign can be run— buy a super PAC. Like Most of the staff is hired by the super PAC. The ads are all being bought by the super PAC. And you know who the super PAC donors are. And you show up at their events to raise the money. Why bother with the farce? Mm-hmm. So, so the beauty of our system is supposed to be that every citizen's voice and vote counts equally, regardless of the number of green pieces of paper they control. And that culminates in the ballot box. That's a farce. That's just not the system we have in the United States of America. And the worst part of it is, We create this myth that that's how it works, when in fact that's not how it works. And so every politician dances to the tune of their biggest donor. It's like as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, it's like a law of nature. Mm -hmm. Every politician dances to the tune, like a circus monkey, to their biggest donor. Now, in my case, that biggest donor is me. And if you're investing in your own campaign, the way the rules work is that the 6600 limit applies to everybody else. But if it's your own money, you can put in an unlimited amount. Mm -hmm. So I've put in over, I think, 15 plus million. I have to look up the exact number. It's over 15 for sure million dollars into this campaign. Well, I'd rather do that than be somebody else's circus monkey. But it is a broken system. And it is the dirty little secret in American politics.
1: And those who don't.
0: There's the donor puppet masters pulling the strings.
1: Those who do not dance to the tune don't even end up becoming politicians. Because they they don't don't win. Not the ones you hear of. They don't Certainly. end up winning. I, I, one yeah. thing that really frustrates me are the bureaucrats that you talked about in your book yeah. that then become upper management or sit totally. on boards, make millions of dollars, all the while when they're in the, the public, public office, they're just like a dancing puppet, like you said, for those industries that they will then join, make seven-figure salaries after their term. Yeah. It, it's the real
0: di- one of the real divides in this country is not between black or white or Democrat or Republican even. It's between what I call this managerial class in Woke Inc. That's Mm -hmm. what I was talking about. The same kind of middle to upper management that staffs corporate boards of directors or is the associate dean of God knows what at some godforsaken university to being the undersecretary of something or other in the U.S. government to the person sits in the ambassador to some second tier nation abroad. It's the same horizontal pool of people that are crushing the
2: will of the everyday citizen.
0: And I would put the Super PAC Puppet Masters in that category.
2: Do you find that there's a balance, though, between going with some of these large donors and getting your own message across? Like, let's well, just say that's the I, only I way to become president. Across. That's but, what I'm doing. But let's just say that's the only way to be president, is that yeah. you have to get these donations. Do you find there to be a balance between it?
0: I think that that's... Because otherwise, then,
2: you, then I mean, it might never happen. Yeah, that's, that's,
0: so that's what I was saying. It's one thing to write Woke ink. Like, that was easy for me. The hard part is if your mission is actually to change this country, you've got to be oriented towards your ends. Now, I'm being an idealist about this, but my hope is in the modern era versus at least even seven, eight years ago, we can reach people directly through other mediums. That's why I'm talking to you guys. <laughs> I'm talking to other people, reaching people directly on the hope that we can still break that system. So I'm running against that system. I'm not running against any other candidate. I'm running against that system. And because I've been blessed to live the American dream in this country, I have no real resources to be able to put into this in a way that somebody who wanted to challenge the system without those resources couldn't. So I don't want to compromise on principle there. Are there people, if if people want to support me in whatever way, I'm not going to change what I say for them, and they know that. I'm not dancing to anybody's tune, but if people want to support me, great. I'll take it, but I'm not going to play the game that the other candidates play in in becoming circus monkeys, but we will find out whether that's a successful strategy uh, or not.
2: What would you do if that doesn't work?
0: I'd reflect on it and think about how else we reshape and fix a badly broken system, which is what we have today, a badly broken system. And so right now, my my heart says we're going to be successful. But there's no point in speculating. I'm going to keep doing what we're doing exactly the way we've been doing it. And another, you know, seven, eight months, it's going to be very clear whether I'm the Republican nominee. And in another 13 months, it's going to be clear whether I'm the next president. So I'm not naturally a plan B kind of person. So we're going to carry that track and. See, see how far it takes us, which I think is going to be to success in reviving this country. But if it's not, and the broken system is as broken as it is that stops an outsider or anybody else coming in, play by the rules, but be able to get elected without playing the donor puppet master game. I think there's a lot of soul searching, not just for me, but for this country on how we break that system. It is corrupt. And it needs to change.
1: I'm curious, why do so many politicians have all of these campaign promises before they get elected into being in public office? And then all of a sudden, when they're in public office, nothing changes. For example, Trump on the wall. For example, Hillary Clinton saying that everything is wrong with with public policy. Everything's wrong with politics and the bureaucrats. But she's been a career politician. The same Mm -hmm. as Joe Biden. Like, why do they blame everything yet change nothing? Mm -hmm. Is this because of that distortion from their donors and they promise all these things to be appetizing to the to the, the to voters the and then yeah. all of a sudden like they just think it's are a big part of it. towards their own I donors. think it's a big
0: part of it. A lot of it's a deflection tool to be able to, you know, advance their own political goals when in fact the things that they need to get done are the ones that their donor masters have told them to get done. I think some of this is also, politicians sometimes just make mistakes. I mean, a U.S. president can't do certain things without Congress. Mm-hmm. And so you don't know what Congress is going to look like. So I try not to make promises that are legislative promises in this campaign, things that are contingent on Congress. The things I'm talking about doing are the things that I can get done without asking Congress for permission Mm -hmm. or for forgiveness. Shut down a lot of those excess bureaucratic agencies. Lay off 75 percent of the useless federal employee headcount. 25 percent of the people can get the rest of the job done. These are things that I'm going to be able to get done in my capacity as U.S. president. And the fact that I don't have promises that I've made to donors about very specific things that I'm going to do, no, the promises I've made are the ones that are transparent on media and social media to the American public every day. That's what I hope will be what allows me to succeed in a way that many of these politicians of yesterday have not. And I do think it's going to take an outsider to do that. I also think it's going to take somebody coming from the next generation to do it. I agree. I I really do. I mean, it's our generation, your generation, that's going to bear... The brunt of the $33 yeah. trillion dollar national deficit that we have and so yeah. on. And so I think it makes sense right now more than ever to have somebody from the different generation, you know, from the next generation I'm curious,
2: to lead us. Where do you feel like your weak spots are? Where are your blind spots? Hmm. By definition, if they're blind spots, you know. You all, don't know about them. I yeah, get it, but, but let me think about that. Because I've heard a lot of people mm-hmm. say experience. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a big one. I mean, I think that.
1: But that's the oversaid one.
0: Yeah, I think it is the oversaid one. But I think it's a legitimate question. I mean, I think that even for a lot of people in the Republican primary base who who view me favorably, I think the way they view me right now, you know, we're sitting in October, we got time to evolve this. Many of them didn't know who I was six months ago, but right now I think many of their headspace is, great young man, breath of fresh air, that's what I hear a lot, such an important voice in this race, and I'm glad you're running and thank you for making the sacrifice to run and you have a bright future ahead and whether you're president or something else, I'm so glad you're playing a role in our country's future. That's, that's, that's where the headspace is. You know, there, there's the you know, 8% of people out there, 10% of people out there who are already supporting me. That's good. It was 0% in March, so we've made some progress. But the big obstacle is getting people from seeing me as a you know, nice young man with great ideas and energy and youthful spirit. Who has a bright future ahead and has a role to play to say that's going to be the guy who's my next president. And I don't think that we have grown up in an era where people are used to seeing somebody who's 38 years old be the next president. But frankly, we live in an era. I mean, you're a creator. I I respect that about you, man. But Thomas Jefferson was a creator. He was 33 years old, same age, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. And he invented the swivel chair while he was at it. (laughs) Right. And Thomas Jefferson wasn't alone. I mean, Benjamin Franklin invented the Franklin Stove. The bifocal spectacles, a remedy to the common cold. We don't have that spirit in this country anymore. And I think that it doesn't have to stay that way. We can bring it back. But that's my job to get done. If we get done, I'll be the next president. And that's the work that I have cut out for me in the,
2: in the next few months ahead. Do you feel like you have any other weaknesses, though? Yeah, I'm sure we all have,
0: you know. So, so, do you mean substantive weaknesses or electoral weaknesses? Substantive, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Like in terms of being an effective president, correct? I mean, countless. <laughs> I think, I think we all do. But let me, let, uh, from a personal perspective. Look, I'm a guy who has, in my career, been fortunate to work with very bright people in building the businesses that I've built. That was part of my philosophy: hire people. Smarter than you, or more talented than you, in whatever domain I can find them and need them. And when I look back at the people who I've built my businesses or enterprises with, these are some of the most talented people I'll meet in my life. I chose them intentionally with that basis because we started from scratch to build up. I think coming in and running the executive branch of the government with millions upon millions of pre existing employees who are there not based on merit but based on civil service protections and other factors is a different game than being a creator from the ground up. And so I think that that will be a new experience Mm -hmm. for me, one where I can't alone rely on my entrepreneurial experience to do it. Now, I think that that entrepreneurial experience provides some real advantages that people otherwise coming from within politics or bureaucracy don't have. But I think the best you can do about your limitations is at least to be aware of them, humble about them. One of the ways that I did build my businesses was to surround myself with people who would challenge me, not just people who were yes men who agreed with me, people who shared the same principles and mission Mm -hmm. and who are skilled, but often will disagree with me and be unafraid to challenge me to be the best version of myself as a leader I possibly can be. And I intend to lead the federal government the same way as well.
1: Do you think the government has recovered alien spacecraft?
0: Have they identified? What was the question unidentified flying objects, uh, or alien, alien spacecraft, spacecraft, or well, evidence, flying objects, evidence of sure, aliens? I would say evidence of aliens. I don't know. So, so the question I'm answering yes to is have unidentified okay. flying objects? Yeah.
2: If you did discover aliens, do you think it would be in the public's best interest to know about it or not?
0: I think it's the public's best interest to know what the government knows.
2: There are almost no circumstances
0: in which the government should be
2: hiding something but, from the I public. Agree. But let's say that would cause public panic. Do you believe that maybe it's, See, I, it's worth I, I think withholding? That,
0: I think there's so this is this is an ancient debate from the era of Socrates and Plato to even the COVID nineteen and climate change alarmism era that we're in today. There's no such thing as a noble lie. It doesn't exist. People think they're telling a lie to be noble because the public can't handle the truth. We can handle the truth. We require the truth. And the reason people don't trust the government is that the government doesn't trust the people back. And so if there's one thing I will bring to the table, we'll be transparent, tell the truth about everything. Release the Jeffrey Epstein client list. Mm -hmm. Say what we know about unidentified flying objects. Say what we know about... How many federal agents were in the field on January 6th? I mean, just give it to us straight. What do we know about the vaccines before they were rolled out for COVID-19? Just be straight with the public. Release the National okay. Transgender Shooter Manifesto. Mm-hmm. Transparency. Anytime a government official has pressured a private actor to do something through, through the back door that the government couldn't do directly, release it. Make it known to the public.
1: When the government controls like where they choose to be honest and, and where they choose to lie, I think... That's hard to draw that line. And I think that they've been a little generous on their side with it. Um, You decided to step down from Roy because of your non-acknowledgement of BLM and, you know, post the George Floyd tragic death. And
0: broader stakeholder capitalism and and corporate social responsibility garbage, all that.
1: Exactly. But currently you're kind of campaigning based off of being a huge like uniter, right? Mm -hmm. Similar to what Obama was trying to do, which is like be the great uniter. How do you expect to unite the United States when you struggle to do so with Roivind?
0: Well, I actually think that's a good, challenging question to ask. The mission is different, right? The mission of Roivind was to develop medicines for patients who needed them that the rest of pharma had ignored. And so we actually did unite the company around that mission, even though there were people on both sides mm-hmm. of a political question related to Black Lives Matter. Now, my job as leader of the president of the United States is and to unite this country yeah. around our national values. So it depends on the mission that you have. So it's, it's more that I fulfilled that mission in my seven years as CEO. I oversaw the development of a number of medicines, five of which are FDA approved today, one of which is life-saving therapy in kids, another for prostate cancer, another for women's health conditions, endometriosis, uterine fibroids and others. That was that mission. Now I'm onto a different mission. And I think that the Obama or Biden version of national unity, it's fake. I think their model of national unity is just getting other people to believe what they believe and trying to get the other side who disagrees with them to compromise and then sing hand, hold hands, sing kumbaya. That's not how we're going to get to national unity. I think the way we're going to unite this country is by reviving the ideals that we share as Americans all the way going back to our founding. Mm -hmm. And those are extreme ideals. It's not through moderation or being a moderate. It is by embracing the extremism of those ideals, free speech, the idea that you guys get to speak your mind as long as I get to in return. That is a radical idea. For most of human history, it was done the other way. The unbridled pursuit of excellence and meritocracy. That is a radical, extreme idea. But I think the way we're going to unite this country is by embracing that radicalism rather than somehow engaging in moderation and compromise.
2: Now, I'm curious on the topic of Roy vent I'm really big into investing. And cool. Yahoo Finance had an article about Roy Vince's negative EPS and huge losses lately. Who is oh, so, sustaining those losses? So, so
0: so it's actually really important to understand yeah. the biotech business model. Right? I mean Royvin's a nine, ten billion dollar some odd public company today. And most biotech companies that are even companies most biotech companies that are one or two or three billion dollar biotech companies, on an accounting basis, their R and D costs exceed their revenue. Many That's of them correct. don't even have products yet that are approved. But the value of that IP as those products proceed through different stages of the process, make it a lot more valuable. So in mm. Royvon's history, for example, there were years of developing these medicines and then sell them in one year to other distributors in like a $3 billion deal. That was what happened in my last full year as CEO or, or my last year and a half as CEO. So it's just a way in which if you look at normal standard you know, industry outside of biotech, consumer products or whatever, you analyze it differently versus an IP industry, yeah. intellectual property industry. So most biotech companies, full stop, outside yep. of big pharma, most innovative biotech companies worth billions of dollars are not companies that in the year that they're actually developing a given medicine are recording EPS. Yeah. Even though it's the accretion of the IP value, does it
2: that worry you though that the COO has sold off so many of his shares over the last year? I have not I paid think... attention to it. To tell okay, you this
0: year. once I've separated from the company, I've um, you know I'd, I've left my investments to to somebody separate. But my view is that you know my, my hope and expectation is that Royvan's going to be an incredibly successful company over the long run. I believe even in the businesses and enterprises that I've created, part of what you do is build great succession for yourself, mm-hmm. build great teams that are able to carry on the mission such that what you create outlives you. That's what gives me a lot of satisfaction. And so, you know, I think it's been a bear of a year in the stock market for a lot of people. Royvin's Mm -hmm. been immensely successful and I give a ton of credit to the team that's there. I don't take credit for that. I've been out of the business for a little while now, but I give credit to the team that's there and I take pride in having for every about almost every one of those senior people there having recruited that team. And that's,
2: Hopefully how I'll lead this government and as well as recruit some of the best advice. This is the last one. Okay. Uh there's a video of you out there. I didn't realize you have an accent. And I want to show you this. I just want to get <laughs> okay. your opinion on that. <laughs> Alright, let me
1: see it. No mom, I'm going to be first, but, but Trump is so he's so way ahead. <laughs> way ahead, man. But I tell them I went to Harvard, I went to Yale, they look at me like, okay. That's
0: really funny. Hey, uh Vivek. Hey, hey man, how are you? Vivek? Yeah, Vivek from Good to meet you. Hi, hi. hi. Good to meet hey, you. Hey, hey. Yeah. What brings you to this part of town? Where are you from? Uh, I'm like down the street actually. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So 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 what do you do? Uh,
2: I'm a student I want to uh play basketball. It's fantastic. So When you have, you know, you can be a cornerback, you can be a wide receiver, it doesn't really matter. The great thing about a meritocracy is, if you're really good, you're gonna make millions of dollars. And if you're not, you're gonna get cut from your team, probably not gonna have any friends, probably not gonna get any girls, but that's the great thing about capitalism, right? It's equality for all. And, uh,
1: that's why on day one, we gotta get rid of affirmative action. We gotta get rid of affirmative action. That guy's pretty good his, yeah. his actual vague voice is very good. It's really good <laughs> he Oh my like, gosh. Wait, yeah, so this wait, guy that, might have, a, might have a future
0: career. Is that not you? I mean, I wish I was <laughs> in my 20s That <laughs> guy's pretty good. Yeah, so
2: <laughs> maybe when uh, when they're looking for people to mock me on SNL, he'd be a pretty good
1: I, I,
0: I think he'd yeah. be pretty SNL good dying. Yeah.
2: I'm gonna tell you if you did a video with him and you brought him here You'll get like thirty million views. We should bring, Guar- crack him down. Let's get the guy Guaranteed. Here. I've never met him. I came across this a few days ago, and I wanted to show. It's, it's pretty darn yeah, good. This it's has gone viral. Good. We'll get that guy yeah. here. That's really fun. He makes a living just off of impersonating. You
0: me. know what? I'm happy to. I'm happy to have spawned you know creative careers, and uh, you know I give that guy some credit. <laughs> I, I have a feeling, mm-hmm. if we're successful in this, as I expect to be, I have a feeling that guy's going to be. In
2: employment for a long time to come. <laughs> so I wish him well cool. in his career. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. This I has been it, such guys. an honor. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank, Thank you for coming over. Thank I you. appreciate it. Beautiful. Thanks. Thanks, I guys. I really appreciate your time. Sorry, we went a little later than it